Terry? Wh- what's that? What's all that noise? Uh, well, Shani, what you're hearing is me leaving our headquarters here in Silver Spring, Maryland, and driving up Highway 270 to Frederick, Maryland. I took this trip last week. I went to Frederick to talk to this guy. Uh, so my name is John Lustria. I'm the director of education at the National Museum of Civil War Medicine, and I'm excited to be here. I wanted to talk to Mr. Lustria because I wanted to hear about how wounds and infections were dealt with during the Civil War. So you wanted to see what treatment was like before antibiotics. Pretty much. As we've dug into the topic of antibiotic resistance in this podcast, we've talked a little bit about the time before antibiotics. But what I learned from the visit was that the Civil War was not only a major event in the political history of the nation, it was also a huge turning point in the field of medicine. Where for the first time, um, the United States was not just a consumer of medical knowledge, suddenly were producers of medical knowledge, which I think people living today were pretty comfortable with that designation that we produce medical knowledge, but it all gets its start in the Civil War. The Civil War is an important moment in American history for uh, you know, hundreds of reasons. Um, but that medical side of things, the medical reason why the Civil War is important, I think is often um, not highlighted enough. That's all interesting, but this isn't a history podcast. So tell me, what can the Civil War tell us about research into multidrug resistant organisms today? I think you'll actually be surprised by the connections between lessons learned during the Civil War and the science and medicine we're doing today, especially in the military. Before we get to that, though... Sure. I'm Army Captain Shani Allen, commander of the Headquarters and Headquarters Company of the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, affectionately known as RARE. <laughs> and I'm Terry Welch, Strategic Communications Director at RARE. And this is RARE Science. In this episode of Rare Science, we're going to follow the evolution of military medicine from the Battle of Bull Run to the deserts of Afghanistan, showing how techniques that saved lives in the global war on terror had their roots in the Civil War. We'll also go through the steps of getting wounded soldiers from point of injury to hospital stateside and discuss how Department of Defense doctors work to make sure bacteria aren't coming along for the ride. Stick with us. So, we were discussing the Civil War, which, as people may or may not know, occurred at the same time germ theory was being established, before viruses were discovered, and before bacteria, which had been known about for almost 200 years by the time the war started, were even understood to cause disease. All true. But there are some key innovations and decisions that came out of the Civil War that continue to affect military medicine today. It's, it's so easy to feel like the Civil War, something like the Civil War, is like ancient history. It really isn't. Things in the past um, directly benefit us today. It doesn't happen overnight, of course. All these innovations, they don't happen right away. But groundwork gets laid, and people keep kind of building on top of that. Okay, let's start with some numbers. First, 750,000. That's the rough estimate of the number of soldiers who died during the Civil War. More American soldiers than have died in every other war combined. Proportionally, that would be as if like 8 million Americans today were killed in a four-year period. Here's another number, two-thirds. 
of all Civil War deaths, uh, two-thirds come as a, resu a result of disease. So you're more likely to die from disease than you are from battlefield injury. And the cause of that has a lot to do with the fact that we hadn't discovered germ theory yet, about roughly a decade away from that when the Civil War is taking place. Many of the diseases that killed these soldiers were bacterial infections, gangrene, pyemia, tetanus, and others, according to historian Shauna Devine, a professor at Canada's Western University and the author of Learning from the Wounded. But how do we know that's what caused those deaths? considering doctors at the time didn't even know what bacterial infections were. Because the doctors at the time kept excellent records. And this is one of the important practices that comes from the time period, methodically recording the treatment of patients. So what you're saying is, even if they didn't know what patient symptoms meant at the time, by simply recording them, we can figure out what they were seeing in hindsight. Exactly. Here's an example, and this gets gross, I'm sorry. Today we know that the presence of pus in a wound is a bad thing because it's a sign of infection. They didn't know that back then. They just thought pus was just a part of the healing process. Infections were so pervasive, it's like, oh, there's pus, good news. So, you know, we can infer some things based on how they described individual cases. Um, and here I'll state my background is in history, not in medicine, but um, those with, you know, there are different types of pus that we can interpret as being more or less serious of an infection. Um, like this, there were um, yellow, creamy, mustard-colored pus with, that didn't have an odor. That was a staph infection, probably, which is better than a um, pus that's dark red, very runny, and heinously offensive. Um, and so, you know, they would have referred to that as laudable pus versus not so laudable pus. So now we can look back and see what the infections were caused by because the colors of the pus were written down. Well, we can make some educated guesses. Don't get me wrong, but that doesn't seem like a major innovation. Okay, but not only were they written down, they were gathered together. You see, in 1862, a surgeon named Jonathan Letterman was given the rank of major and named the medical director of the Army of the Potomac. That was basically the Army of the East. One of his first requirements was for the assistant surgeon of every regiment to provide full accounts of every case treated in the regiment, from wound to treatment to outcome. He created the first governmental bureaucracy that... Um, he created a database. Exactly. And with so many people wounded, those data would have been a valuable resource for people who wanted to study the injury and diseases of soldiers. It is a collection of thousands of case histories, the assemblage of all kinds of observed data, and it's government funded because the government publishes this. So uh, the Civil War is the beginning of organized government medical research. Today, we call the practice of gathering this data public health surveillance, and it's an important part of how we track and stop the spread of these diseases through units and the military health system. Uh, having going through COVID, we know that that's pretty important, even for the general population. And, you know, one other thing that came out of all the carnage of the war was that doctors had many opportunities to learn. As the historian Michael Sapple has shown, some of the most valuable knowledge a doctor could have in this time period was a deep understanding of anatomy. That makes sense. You might still not know what viruses are, and you might believe in things we know are bunk today, like miasmas and humors and applying leeches, but at least you know where the liver is and what it's supposed to look like. 
and before the Civil War, medical education was somewhat iffy, and the dissection of bodies was not something most doctors had been able to experience firsthand. Doctors uh, operated, uh, no pun intended, in the shadows, uh, as it were. Um, they, they participated in a lot of grave robbing and body snatching um, because it was taboo to dissect people. So when people found out about this, they weren't terribly enthused. And so it wasn't uncommon for a local population to storm the medical school, burn it to the ground. You know, the doctors were people doing creepy things behind closed doors. Who knows what they're cutting up in there? Um, but the Civil War changes the relationship of really the United States with dead bodies. Suddenly, they're everywhere. And people are a lot more comfortable with like, oh, okay, I can see how there might be some medical benefits from dissection, or I can see what we We've gleaned because it, it's in many ways sort of a PR campaign um, that the the uh, the Civil War surgeons participate in, knowingly or unknowingly. Um, it's like okay, good things will can come of this stuff that we used to think was a little weird and creepy. Whoa, that's wild! But there is an upside. The Civil War created a whole generation of doctors who were better trained than the previous generations and also had the tools and the data to advance scientific understanding of surgery, disease, and bacteriology. They also saw the need to better record and share what they were learning, as well as professionalize their education. Civil War doctors flooded the Young American Medical Association, for example, and turned it into an organization that helped improve and reform medicine in the country. So I can see the groundwork for improved medical science being laid, but when do we get to the modern battlefield? Soon, but first, let's go back to the first battlefield of the Civil War, the Battle of Bull Run. 60,000 soldiers met on the field that day. About 18,000 were engaged directly in the battle, and at its end, more than 800 had been killed, 2,700 had been wounded. In the aftermath, it became obvious that military medical infrastructure was not prepared for the war. Some of the wounded lie on the field for five to seven days. I mean, it's, it's a disaster, and it is immediately apparent that something needs to change. Wait, see, I knew I recognized the name Jonathan Letterman. I thought you might. Would you like to explain to the listeners why? Okay. Before I became a physical therapist, my first MOS in the military, or job for civilians, was in the Medical Service Corps, which is made up of a broad category of soldiers. And, and this is a very simple description. I know I'm going to get flack for this, but a very simple description is that it's made up of soldiers that make medicine run through research, administrative, logistics, and preventive measures. Letterman is important to the MSC history because he's known for having created the first American ambulance and triage system. One of his first innovations when he's appointed in uh, 1862 is to create the Ambulance Corps, a dedicated group of trained individuals uh, whose job it is is to go and get the wounded from the field and into hospitals. And the Ambulance Corps debuts at the Battle of Antietam, the bloodiest single day in American history, 23,000 casualties. Uh, and within 24 hours of the end of the battle, all wounded soldiers are off the field and into hospitals. It's night and day improvement in just a little bit over a year. Letterman, who was something of a scholar of the methods of treatment, had studied the work of Dominique Lurie, Napoleon's surgeon, who had created an effective ambulance and triage system. He adapted it and improved upon it, saving thousands of Union lives. Letterman's system involved aid stations near the scene of the battle, filled hospitals further away, 
usually in a barn or some other commandeered structure, and general hospitals in an area of relative safety. It relied on speed, getting the soldiers who were the most desperately wounded but who still might survive with treatment to the field hospital as fast as possible. Letterman's system, with technological updates, is not very different from what we have today. No, it's not. We use some different terminology referring to the different echelons or roles of treatment, but it's still pretty recognizable. Lieutenant Colonel Robert Sobolski, director of Rare's Bacterial Diseases Branch, whom you met in the last episode, will walk us through each stage. First, Role 1, the Battalion Aid Station. If you're lucky, a tent. Inside the tent, a couple of cots or, or stretchers and, and then a bunch of boxes that have bandages, tourniquets, um, IV bags, um, lidocaine to help numb the pain, some of the pain, uh, antibiotics. Roll two? So basic roll two doesn't have much more in terms of the, the trauma management and, and medical capability. Basically roll two, what it brings in is what we call a patient hold capacity. People who have gotten through that initial point of having their blood control, you know, bleeding controlled and, and, and volume replaced by whatever means, IV or, or otherwise, now you can hold them for a little while. Um, make sure they're stable for onward movement and take the pressure off the battalion aid station. Beyond that, they, they've got some additional capabilities. We referred to it when I was there as hugs, bugs, um, drugs, and specs. So basically, <laughs> so some basic lab capability, that's the bugs. Um, some behavioral health, that's the hugs. Um, some basic pharmacy, which is the drugs. And then optometry, which is the, the specs. Into that role too, you could add uh, a forward surgical team, which is basically now you've got the ability to do some some initial life-saving um, surgical interventions. Right. Role three. It used to be called combat sport hospitals. Now they're the army converted to, to field hospitals. A lot of it is just more capacity to do the same things. Now you've got true nursing capability, so you can have general medical ward, You've, you'll have an intensive care ward for patients that are less stable and require more direct hands-on work, um, more surgical capability, um, more pharmacy and the like, more laboratory. So the laboratory in role two is ba you know really largely about like basic chemistries and things like that. Role three is where you're going to have the ability to do microbiology culture to, to identify what somebody has. Okay, let's pause here. Having laboratories at this stage is key in the prevention of deadly bacterial infections spreading throughout the patient's body, but it's also an important step in the prevention of having those infections spread throughout the military health system and beyond. Now, ideally, um, you want it figured out there at Roll 3 before they go back to, to Landstuhl. Landstuhl Regional Medical Center in Landstuhl, Germany, was where wounded Americans were sent from Iraq and Afghanistan for further treatment and to be prepared to be sent back to the U.S. for treatment. The story of Acinetobacter and, and Iraq is it was the stealth organism that nobody knew to look for. The problem was we didn't appreciate it. We didn't identify and diagnose it. We passed that, that patient off the Landstuhl. 
we had poor infection control practices in place. It got into longitudinal, it got into Walter Reed before we all appreciated that Acetobacter is a problem. So you would like all that identified as far forward as possible. The first opportunity would be the Roll 3 hospital. During the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, it became clear very quickly that antibiotic-resistant bacteria were spreading at the higher echelons of care, including Longstool and stateside hospitals. Soldiers risk amputations and having their lives threatened because of infections they picked up inside the hospitals themselves. And there was lots of debate early on of where these bacteria came from. This is Brigadier General Clint Murray, Commander of Regional Health Command Europe, and our former commander here at RARE. We knew Staph aureus was, was on ourselves and would get into that wound, but Acinetobacter, the debate was, was it in the dirt or was it nosocomial transmission or spread through the hospital? And there was a lot of work early on trying to answer that question to include, you know, digging dirt samples up to see if they had multi-drug-resistant Acinetobacter. And, and there was sort of a, a Sentinel article published in Clinical Infectious Disease by Paul Scott who was able to trace an isolate from a sample in an OR in Iraq and that sample was also found in Germany. It was also found at Walter Reed. And it was actually found in civilians at Walter Reed that had never been deployed. Um, so what that really taught us is it really wasn't in the dirt. It really was nosocomial infections uh, or spread through the hospital from either the environment or person to person or selected because of the antibiotics we were using. So really there was this shift of, yes, it's important to treat the injuries at, at point of injury to make sure we minimize those infections but also had to make sure we watched their care throughout the entire hospitalization and not to give them more resistant bacteria. So in addition to controlling antibiotic use, the other emphasis was infection prevention and control, which is really as they would come out of Iraq and Afghanistan, survey them, you know, swab their wounds, um, actually get stool samples to make sure they didn't have these multi-drug resistance on or in them. Uh, and if they were, make sure we um, sort of cohorted them or isolated them around uh, from other folks so they didn't spread the bacteria from one person to the next. Again, as in Letterman's system, speed was the key to treating infections in these patients. There is a concept in the treatment of trauma known as the golden hour. Research has shown that getting an injured person treatment within an hour of their injury greatly increases their chances of survival. In the U.S. military, this wasn't just good practice, but mandated directly from the Secretary of Defense during the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, so, so really the golden hour, that rapid evacuation saved lives, right? So, so if I'm able to get you to a surgeon um, very quickly, so really first stop bleeding, that's where it really kills you in the first three to ten minutes. Once I do that, if I can get you to a surgeon and they can get in there and they can de debreed those wounds, get the dirt out of there, um, and then close that space so you're not at increased exposure to more bacteria, that's how we decrease our infection rates. Um, so really that rapidity of movement um, allowed us to not only not let the bacteria go from 1 to 2 and 2 to 4 and 4 to 8 to 16 to 32 and just keep going because uh, that's really how the bacteria replicate. If you're able to sort of intervene in that early enough, those bacteria don't grow and you don't get infections. Dr. Daniel Zorowski is the Deputy Chief of the Wound Infections Department of the Bacterial Diseases Branch here at RARE. He says that doing what can be done in the golden hour to prevent infection is important to saving lives. Within that first 60 minutes, um, it's great to get an, an antibacterial and antibiotic, a broad spectrum, on board because what a study showed uh, out of the Army Institute of Surgical Research down in San Antonio, what they showed about four or five years ago is that if you have an antibiotic on board, 
during that first 60 minutes, the chance of getting an infection afterwards goes down significantly. Uh, so you may only have like up to two to 5% chance of getting an infection. Every minute past that golden hour where an antibiotic is not on board, the chances of infection goes up significantly, uh, like one to 2% almost every hour. And then by the time you get to four or five hours, now your chance of getting an infection is almost 10 to 15%. Uh, if you wait 24 hours, it goes up even more, right? Of course, that becomes complicated when those infections are caused by antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Early in the Iraq War, medics and doctors would treat and stabilize casualties, basically doing all the right things, only to find out later the patient died from infection. In Operation Iraqi Freedom, uh, we saw more than 5,000 Acinetobacter infections, which led to pretty big percentages of amputations and, and morbidity for a lot of soldiers afterwards. Uh, there were some cases of mortality as well. There are some uh, individual cases that we learned about at Launch Tool where people had Acinetobacter infections uh, and then went on to go to get septic and they, they passed away at Launch Tool in Germany. So at the end of this episode, where do we land? What's the takeaway? The lesson is that we are still benefiting from and building upon innovations put in place 160 years ago. It's that those practices, systems of study, logistics, and triage are saving an increasing number of lives on battlefields and in our hospitals. I guess there's another lesson in remembering that we're still learning. New practices put in place to prevent the spread of infections throughout the military health system saved lives. And as we've talked about a lot here on this podcast, we have much to learn about fighting multidrug-resistant organisms. The value of public health surveillance was also highlighted here, and we're going to really drive that point home in our next episode, and which will visit a library of bacteria right here at RARE. RARE Scientist hosted by Terry Welch and me, Captain Shani Allen. It's produced by Terry Welch and Samir Deshpande. Rare Science is a product of the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, commanded by Colonel Chad Koenig and the U.S. Army Medical Research and Development Command, commanded by Brigadier General Tony McQueen. Special thanks today to the National Museum of Civil War Medicine and to Terry Reimer, the Director of Research, who helped arrange our interview with Mr. Lustria. If you're ever in Frederick, Maryland, you'll want to check out the museum. It's pretty cool. And thanks again to the public affairs team at Brook Army Medical Center, especially Deputy Public Affairs Officer Robert Whetstone and Corey Toy, who conducted and recorded the interview with General Murray for us. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like the podcast, review us on your chosen podcast app. It helps people find us more easily. Thank you, and we'll hope you'll join us again in two weeks. Okay, but before we get to the next episode, can I mention one quick bit of trivia? Go ahead. I know the amount of stuff you had to edit out of this episode to keep it from growing ridiculously long is killing you. What do you got? So we talked earlier about the Battle of Bull Run. Mm-hmm. And during that battle, a young Union doctor was captured named George Sternberg. He would later escape captivity, and after the war, he would benefit from that scientific culture we talked about that grew in the medical community in the conflict's wake. 
He would eventually become renowned for his study of bacteria and write America's first in-depth manual of bacteriology in 1892. In fact, the great German scientist and bacteriologist Robert Koch called him the father of American bacteriology. In 1893, as a brigadier general, he was named the 18th Army Surgeon General, and pretty much one of his first acts was to create the Army Medical School with General Order 51. Today, what's left of the Army Medical School and the research it conducted is called something different, the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. Okay, all right, that was a pretty cool fact. You win. I thought you'd like it. 